This is Catherine Parker from The Haunting of Hill House. You're listening to Derek Thomas and the Monday Morning Critic podcast. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer. I would have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went a different way, partner. It has been a tragedy for this court to see the total waste of humanity that we have experienced here. I don't have any animosity toward you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. My next guest is a writer whose amazing work on extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile can be found on Netflix. He is just a fantastic writer. His name is Michael Worwey. Michael, first off, I told you off air, congratulations. And two, what an amazing movie. Thank you, Derek. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, So I don't know where to start. So I'm going to tell you this. So I've had 20 directors, 90 actors, 20 authors. That's ballpark, right? You're the second screenwriter I've had. I'll have you know that the first one I had, I had in November. A couple months later, went on to win a Golden Globe and an Academy Award. I just want you to know that. Well, I'm in good company then. Uh, That's very flattering. Well, you're a good company, but I also want to know what could be ahead for you. I, I, I'm just throwing it out there. I can't say that publicly, Derek, but I appreciate you bringing up that, that fact. Uh, fingers crossed. Yes, absolutely. So, so as I said, congratulations. Great film. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. You mentioned off here, and I knew this. You were born in Milwaukee. Um, you went to USC. So you clearly have a love of writing. So let's let's kind of start in Milwaukee a little bit. I heard in an interview, and I try to do accurate research whenever I can, you're a big Jaws fan, and boy, does your love of movies take over from there, right? Absolutely. I, I think I saw Jaws way too young. It probably traumatized me in, in <laughs> way possible. Um, I saw that movie before I was before I knew how to spell. Um, so I started storytelling uh, as an artist. I would draw shark attack stories when I was probably five years old, and um, it just kind of evolved from there. Once once I I did learn how to write, uh, I would borrow the neighbor's typewriter to make it look like a, an official novel. Um, I bought Sid Field and Final Draft when I was 11 years old. Um, I started very young, and I, and I wrote three features by the time I graduated high school. Um, I went to I moved. To, I went to uh, USC where, where I did not study writing. Actually, I studied business. I don't think I had the courage to call myself a writer at that point. But it was always my secret passion to uh, to pursue that once I graduated, um, which I did. I, I took a bartending job and for ten years just wrote a lot of really bad scripts. <laughs> yeah, and your tri- but you had a triple minor that included film, right? Film study. Am I wrong with that? That's correct. I minored in psychology, Spanish, and film, although the film classes I took were, were more business-oriented. They were about the marketing and distribution of the film industry in general. Um, the, writing, the writing I always knew I would have to do on my own regardless. Writing is kind of a, an accumulation of hours, and uh, I knew that, luckily, from a very young age, and I just kind of plowed away at that on my own time while I studied things that I thought would be more interesting and more relevant. And um, I did enjoy studying business, honestly. It was more the, um, the human side of business. It was the managerial stuff. It was the negotiation, persuasion, power politics, and influence. I think all of that served me in the writing 
as well. Um, I, for a brief period of time, I thought I wanted to uh, pay the bills as an investment banker while I wrote screenplays on the side. Uh, I, I did some brief internships in that arena. It was interesting, but I was just too uh, um, drained at the end of the day to focus any creative energy. So, so that got nixed very quickly. Yeah, your 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 early work might have been, in your words, bad. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say you won the Academy Nickel Fellowship Award for screenwriting. So it's safe to say you improved slightly. I like to look back on it and see it and see an upward trajectory. Um, and I could, I could see, I could see little success stories along the way, even when I was struggling. Um, I did win the, the nickel fellowship. I won it with extremely wicked in 2012. Um, I had entered that competition, uh, 29 times over 10 years. Wow. And so over those 10 years, I, you know, I had made progress in the competition. I had made the quarters, I had made the semifinals, uh, and that all kind of gave me a little boost, uh, career wise here and there, but I, I still was never able to get that momentum big enough to, to start working professionally. And it wasn't until extremely wicked, before it won, it became a finalist. And at that point, uh, kind of everything happened almost overnight as far as the awareness uh, is concerned. The, the, um, the working life of a writer still took another year for me um, to get a real job. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, the nickel is what changed my life professionally. And, and, as, and one more question about your, you know, when you were younger. You, you did uh, shoot movies on VHS. I mean, you're clearly a super fan at this point. Um, why writing and not so like acting, right? Because you're a good-looking guy. I've seen you before. You're clearly talented. Why the path of, of writing and not acting or, or, or another field uh, related to, to, to movie making or cinema? I think I always knew that, that creativity um – begins with with writing whether it's literal or metaphorical i mean you are in a sense giving birth to a story um and i always that was always very appealing to me it it affords a lot of control um it is something that can be done in a very solitary fashion in the beginning while you kind of figure out what it is you want to do Uh, i think it's very rewarding just on a personal level and I was never. I'm a very introverted, shy person. I I, uh, I work better behind a computer. Um, I was. I never had any desire to be in front of the camera. Uh, I have all the respect for actors and um, and and what they do. But um, but writing has just kind of always been my 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 first love. And um, and I, I love that anybody can write. You, mm-hmm. you don't need to. You don't need to be cast in a role. You don't need to be given a million dollars to shoot a movie. And you don't. You don't need special equipment. You just need your brain. And, um, and so it was the easiest thing to self start. And, but I also find it one of the most challenging things I've ever done in my life. And it remains so, um, even though I've done, you know, upwards of 20 feature screenplays by this point, I still feel like I'm starting over from scratch with my toolkit every time I start a new project. And I like that challenge. Yeah. And anybody that says that backbone isn't the, 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 oh, sorry, that writing isn't the backbone of anything, TV, film, books, whatever, is simply not being, is being less than truthful because writing is at the core of, of, of everything. Am I being a little bit over the top with that, Michael, or am I accurate with that? I think you're accurate in that it's at the core, but, uh, but I, you know, film especially is also a very collaborative medium. And I think also in that core, it comes on your filmmaker. And we had a wonderful one in Joe Berlinger in this movie, um, a strong producer. Um, it all began with Michael Costigan uh, on Extremely Wicked, who kind of was, 
he and I had partnered from the beginning um, as far as the vision that we wanted to achieve. And then, of course, the cast. And then you get the financing and you get all the department heads. So, But that is all built upon the vision of the script. And that's not to say the vision does not evolve and does not change along the way. It absolutely does. And, and in the best cases, you want it to because you want people working in, at their A game in departments that have knowledge above and beyond anything that I could have come up with uh, as a writer. I, my job I look at is to put the intention down and then I want smarter, more talented people to extrapolate that beyond what I could have imagined. And that was kind of the experience I had with Extremely Wicked where you know I wouldn't change a single thing with the film at this point. I'm so happy with how it came out. And I think a lot of that is the strength of the script, but then people start to gravitate towards that script with similar visions. And so you have a unified uh, team working towards a common goal. Yeah, that's well said. And, and let me ask you, Michael, there's one thing. Um, you were credited, and you just mentioned it kind of, uh, as executive producer. So I think I know a lot about movies. Explain to me, and to maybe those listening that aren't completely sure, what the title executive producer means. And I know it sounds like such a lame, basic elementary question, <laughs> but it's like there's a lot of people that see it and are like, okay, but they don't understand it, right? So what does executive producer mean? The producer credits in the feature world are, are a bit um, nebulous, to say the least. Uh, in this respect, um, I so I was kind of a steward of this project, obviously from the, the start of it. I mean, I wrote this nine years ago, and for the majority of that time, it was just me and the script. Um, but after the Nickel... Um, the Nickel Fellowship win, uh, and Michael Costigan, our producer, came on. It was kind of he and I for the next uh, five or six years just trying to put this thing together with the right director, the right actor, um, find the financing. And we always had several of those elements, but never all at the same time. Um, but through that process, you know, I... I was adamant that I wanted to get the right combination of people involved. I did not want to lose control of it before we knew what that core team was. And so I decided not to sell the script, not to option the script until we had our director, our actor, and our financing, and we were ready to go. And so I think um, the compensation, so to speak, for for taking that risk is uh, I was on the project as an executive producer. And that, you know, um, the full-fledged producer of this is, is hands down Michael Costigan, um, Michael Simpkin came on later on. He's uh, Zach Efron's producing partner. And of course, uh, Nick Chartier, who financed the movie, um, all played integral roles. But, um, you know, for those, for the almost nine years of grinding, um, my, my job was to, uh, help make the decisions along the way to, to realize the movie that we all wanted to make. Yeah. And that makes much more sense. And, you know, when I think of screenwriters, you know, to your, going back to your other title, um, and the one you're just phenomenal at i think of coen brothers i think of tarantino i certainly think of taylor sheridan john hughes steve zalian frank darabont who who has inspired you right so whether usc or or whether you're you're, you know your bartending days or even now who's a screenwriter where you look at you're like i just really enjoy his his work or or her work you know, if we're, if we're talking just screenwriters, because I take inspiration from so many disparate areas, but if we're just looking at the career of screenwriters, you know, I, I think to me the most impressive writers are working today are you know Tony Gilroy and Scott Frank. I mean, I just I just love the body of work that they've done. There's so many different genres. They are craftsmen. They do kind of parachute in and solve problems, but they also self-generate and write a lot of original material. Um, they're directing. They're executive producing. Um, I look at writers like John August and Craig Mazin, who are, you know, giving back to the screenwriting community in such a huge way through their podcast. Um, it's just really inspiring to see, um, you know, writers like that who have reached a level of success 
and are still working at a very high level, but also are giving back to the community. Um, it's a uh, it's something that I think is, is really important to do. I, you know, Billy Ray is another name that comes to mind. He was um, the keynote speaker the year that I won the Nickel Fellowship, and he was so kind to offer his 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 eyes and ears. Like uh, whenever we have, uh, whenever I have questions, and I have reached out to him for some kind of mentorship when uh, I knew nobody else would be able to relate to certain questions I had. So um, those are the writers I think that I look up to. Uh, as far as just pure influences, I mean, they, I, my influences stretch up across music and theater and, and, and authors and everywhere. No, that's well said. And, and John August's work in, in Big Fish is, is, is just simply amazing. I, I still am blown away by that, you know, 15 years later. Um, so I know this, this, this screenplay took you a long time to write. And, and I'm going to ask you why, but not in a way like, you know, what the heck took you so long? But like, but like why in a sense that like um, – it did take a long time. Is it is it because you 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 look at things and you kind of you're a revisionist and you kind of keep wanting to redo things, or is it just simply look? That's when I was happy with the final product. Well, I should say this: the movie took a long time to to come together. This script actually was one of the faster ones for me to write. Okay. Um, I so I began. I never intended to write a, a movie about Ted Bundy. I want to put that out there. I was at the time a struggling writer. I was a bartender, and I was writing a much more commercial script, spec script that you know on the surface seemed like it was a wiser decision for for an aspiring writer trying to break in. I just didn't care about the material at all. I was blocked. I was stuck. I was procrastinating, and I picked up a, a true crime book that happened to be about Ted Bundy. I, I didn't know much about his story, and I was surprised how many of these crazy details. Um, I just had no no idea this was a reality. So that kind of turned into an obsession of trying to learn as much as possible about his life and those around him. And I was um, especially captivated by all these nonviolent details in his life. So I, I really read everything I could find written by a primary source, people who actually knew him during his life. And then the script came together very quickly. I think I wrote the first draft in maybe three or four months, which for me is lightning fast. Uh, I spent another several months rewriting it, and then I just sent it off for the nickel and honestly forgot about it. I never thought it would do anything for my career. Um, it, it was kind of the worst pitch in the, in, in the room, you know, a love story starring Ted Bundy. Um, nobody really got it. Uh, but to the Academy's credit, uh, you know, I think I went through something like 18 readers to, to finally win that thing. Um, they saw the potential in it, and 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 eventually everybody else did too, um, which is just the first step in the process. I mean, that was only, maybe only two years into my nine-year journey because at that point, everybody reads the script and loves the script and passes it around, and it was my kind of calling card, and it broke me into the industry, and it got me working professionally. Um, I've done a lot of a lot of work for the studios since then. Um, but it's a tough, it's a tough story to tell. It's a tough movie to make. And, um, it just took that long for the stars to align, to find the right director, the right actor and, and the financing. Um, so that was a good, probably six years of work after the nickel to, to finally put that together and make it a reality. And that's why, you know, to this day, it's, it is about nine going on 10 years. Wow. And, and, and the other thing I'm going to ask you is, and yes, I do have Google, but what is the blacklist? Explain that to me. So <laughs> everywhere I read, like, like I, I, you know, I, I obviously I Google whatever, but like, I'd rather have you tell me what the blacklist is because it, it, it's a, it sounds like a bad thing, but it's actually a really good thing, right? It's a great thing. It's a, it's a dream that I've had for a long time to make that list. And what it is the original blacklist, there's a blacklist website, and then there's the annual blacklist. Um, it's run by the same person, Franklin Leonard, but um, the annual blacklist is kind of an informal polling of several hundred uh, executives, uh, people around the industry, 
an informal polling of their most liked scripts, unproduced scripts in a calendar year. And so this is just kind of people, um, you know, kind of ranking maybe their top 10 scripts uh, that were their favorites that year that have yet to be made. And I was fortunate enough to be included on that list. And and there's some pretty impressive, um, there's an impressive pedigree of writers who have come from this list. I mean, and, and projects, uh, you know, The Social Network was on there, uh, Slumdog Millionaire, Juno, The King's Speech. You know, a lot of these movies go on to become uh, re- really well done films uh, wow. and, and movies that have endured. And um, just to be included uh, was an honor. And uh, and I, I'm, I'm so happy about it. Michael, and that's what bothers me, right? Because there's so many great writers like you and you mentioned about six great scripts that were out there. Why are people wasting their time with remakes when there's so many great writers out there just producing things ready to get made, but sometimes studios turn to, hey, let's remake this movie that has a completely unnecessary remake ready to go. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, why not introduce the audience to something new and fresh and expose these writers that are so talented and so gifted like you are? Why aren't they going for the new and fresh as opposed to, like, remakes? And Do you get what I'm saying a little bit? I, I think, I hope the tide is starting to turn. You know, there is an appetite for... Um, just well-told original stories. Yes. Um, and and luckily there are some companies that are coming in and filling those gaps, and they're doing so with an economic model that's that's feasible. Um, you know, I, I, the the studio system I think is is a model that requires a tremendous financial investment, and that goes beyond just the production of a movie. It, re- it requires marketing and awareness and all sorts of expenditures that. You know, to them, it's it's kind of a, a spreadsheet calculation where how can how can you mitigate the most risk while um, trying to get the biggest upside, and that's their business model, and that's that's a business model that has worked well for them. Um, we'll see if it's sustainable, but you know, a company like Netflix or Amazon or any of the streamers are coming in now and starting to make those kind of mid-budget genre movies that I grew up loving in the '80s and '90s. Um, there were a lot more. Um, risks taken on original material, and I, I hope that continues. And I think the blacklist has been champion, championing voices like that. Um, but again, I, I think a lot of these projects, mine, my own included, are very risky endeavors uh, going into it. Um, a lot of them are execution dependent, and, and it requires getting the right team around it that all are making the same movie. And that's hard to do. That's very hard to do. And I've seen it firsthand now going forward on this project. Um, we got lucky. We had some very talented people. But uh, my hope is that you know, with the success of certain movies um, that are more challenging subject matter and more original ideas, that it will start to beget other uh, challenging movies and, and interesting stories because there's an appetite for them, no doubt. Yeah, and, and I have to say, you know, as I'm watching Extremely Wicked, Shocking the Evil and Vile, people say, well, how was it? Cause, you know, because I post things. They're like, well, how was it? How was it? And when I tell them what I thought of the movie, like my first sentence, people think I'm a lunatic. I said, I, I cried. Like, I did. Like, like, there's a lot of emotions, right? So there's a ton of emotions. But there's an awesome, uh, I'm going to get to this a little later. There's a scene in the courtroom between Malkovich and Zac Efron. I'm, like, I'm, I'm telling you, Michael, it brought me to tears. And I know it actually happened because they show it, for those that haven't seen it afterwards in the, in the post credits. But I got to say, it just brought me to tears. Do I need to see a therapist, or is that is that an okay reaction? <laughs> it's an okay reaction, and I think uh, you know this is a challenging movie in that it it requires um, at times uncomfortable emotion, and um, you know we were telling a story of seduction and deception and betrayal, and ultimately it's about the truth. And uh, in order to get to that point, in order to have the emotional impact, 
Um, it requires us to buy into a love story. And um, that's uncomfortable, especially given the knowledge that most people have going into this movie about what this is all about. And I think the fact that this is not a violent movie, this is more of a con man story, um, it's, it's told through the lens of a love story purposefully because the aim was to put the viewer in the same emotional point of view as Liz, Ted's girlfriend, and ultimately the American public once they watched his, you know, the first nationally broadcast live trial. Um, and in order to have that kind of turn as, as we start to be reminded of, oh yes, this is actually a, a truly atrocious, awful human being, um, it's meant to create some cognitive dissonance and, and you're feeling one thing, but your intellectual mind knows something else. And, um, and it becomes, it becomes an interesting mix of emotion uh, by the time you get to the end. And if it's successful, hopefully we've, we've caused you to think and feel at the same time. No, that's, that's really well said. And, and one of the things that, you know, I'm looking at IMDb now, it's got a 6.7. That is such an unfair evaluation of this movie. This movie's at least an eight, if not higher. And, that's just basing on scores, but I'm going to tell you why that's the point. Because I, I think people went into this movie thinking, oh, I'm going to see a Silence of the Lambs type. But what they don't realize, and I think a lot of people realize afterwards, is you guys effectively told a beautiful story, not a beautiful story, but an effective story that it just it's a different perspective on it and you don't need to see ted bundy kill a bunch of people to understand where you're going with this there's you know there's a there's a scene you know where you know she approaches and i know you know this she she approaches him in jail she's talking to him and i have to be very careful what i say here because i don't want to spoil it for anybody but he communicates to her that you know he actually did these crimes and there's a little there's a scene after that that's all you need to see there's no need to see 30 people die in this movie and I really appreciate the point you and Joe came from by telling the story. Yeah, we we are aware that um, that there are some truly awful things in this story. Those the crimes and the and the reporting on those crimes has been done ad nauseum and done quite well. Yep. And 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 there have been um, many many movies in the serial killer genre that have been. Uh, revolutionary. There's been some that have not been that great, but um, it's so hard to do something from a unique point of view in an otherwise familiar genre. And I was really excited at the fact of, by the fact of telling a serial killer story with no serial killing in it. Um, we, we weren't interested in telling a slasher movie. We wanted to examine the human dynamics and, and really kind of look at it through a victim's perspective because Liz herself was a victim of sorts. She was gaslit by this man for years. Mm. And um, that that's something that I haven't seen before. And, and I'm really wanted to explore and we took a risk and i i think you know again I'll, i i will go on record saying i'm very proud of what we did and i think people um were a little confused about what they were supposed to be watching and i i truly believe that it's going to age well once um once there's more conversation about it but um but we achieved our goals and i think we did it respectfully and and tastefully and uh, we were very aware of the sensitivity of of the subject matter and of the surviving victim families. You know, we, we in no way wanted to disrespect anybody who had any tangential connection to this case. Uh, and that was first and foremost on our minds as we were making it. Yeah. And, and I'm not just saying this because I invited you and I'm speaking with you. I, I, I loved it. And it's a phenomenal movie. And I think anybody that gives it a chance will see what I'm saying. Uh, Michael, how protective are you of this script? Are right? you the screenwriter? When you meet with Joe, does Joe ever say, like, because Joe's the director, does he ever say, you know what, I don't like this, I, I kind of like this. Are you are you open to kind of, um, I don't know, I don't want to say editing, but 
are, are you is is it kind of a, a fixed thing or is, is it open to negotiation as a screenwriter when you approach joe how, how does that rapport work you have to be open to it i mean that's just that's just how it works in in the feature world the, the director is steering the ship at that point um, ideally, you want to have a partnership and you want to have a, a healthy collaboration. And with Joe, I believe we did. Um, and, and Joe's a very strong filmmaker with a very, um, very bold point of view. On, and he has strong convictions. And, and I thought that was great. That's, that's exactly what you want in somebody who's, who's going to steer this ship. Um, you know, and, and Joe is not afraid to say, you know, I don't like this. Let's change this. Here's an idea. And we had a dialogue, and it wasn't just Joe and I. It was the producers as well. It was at, at one point the actors come on board. Um, it becomes a conversation, and and even though things may feel painful in the moment um, because I had lived with it for so long, ultimately you have to accept that this is a process, and we're all working towards the same end. And um, and I truly believe we were all seeing the same movie, and so uh, any type of criticism that came in, um, I took it to heart, and uh, I fought back when it was time to fight back, and I you know. I incorporated the notes when I felt that it would make the story stronger. But at the end of the day, I'm a steward of the story and we're making a movie and it's no longer a document. And that, at that point, um, the train is rolling. And and luckily, we had a lot of smart people with some very, uh, very good creative instincts on this movie. Spending so long on this script, does it does it take a toll on you, Michael? Does it ever get to the point where, I mean, you're writing about Ted Bundy, you, you're, you're writing about people who, who have been affected by, but as a writer, does it affect you? Does it like... Um, does it ever wear on you mentally? I'm sure it does in certain ways. Uh, this one, because we were telling it from a very specific point of view and because we weren't dealing with the gruesomeness of the crimes, um, obviously I was aware of all those details, but they, they weren't um, front and center in my mind every day as I was working on it. Um, that said, you know, nine years with Ted Bundy is, is, is quite a long time. Um, so I, I, it's nice to move on from that, but I, I have done a lot of work in, in true crime and adapting true stories that involve dark subject matter where it does get a bit heavy at times, but then I just have to take a step back and remember, I know I'm, I'm performing a function here. I'm, I'm telling a story. Uh, I'm, I'm working my craft and, and I can fall back on, on those tools, um, which helps me get through the day. Yeah, and, and it's a unique cast. It's an original cast. I love the casting here. But when you write like this, when you write, do you in your own mind say, you know what, I, I'd love so-and-so to play Liz, or you know what, this person would make a, would make a good Ted Bundy. And I'm not saying you're unhappy with who was cast. You know, Zac, Zac Efron's amazing. Lily Collins is amazing. They were perfect for this. But do you as a writer ever say, you know what, in, in the beginning, where you're like, this actor would make a great Ted Bundy. Does that ever happen as a screenwriter? I, I don't let that happen because um, I've been writing long enough to know that you're never going to get those people anyways, so why waste the effort? Right, <laughs> um, right. I, you know, I, it's funny, when I, when I write scripts, whether they're based on real people or completely fictional, I, I don't really have a specific physical image in my mind. I kind of just feel the energy of the character, um, as weird as that sounds. But in the case of this movie, I, I could not be... Um, more proud of the cast, and I, I can't see it any other way than uh, than Zach and Lily and and everybody else that we cast in this. I, I thought it was the exact perfect casting for each role, and um, it's it's hard to even imagine my version of the movie um, before this all came together because I think everybody was cast in the roles that they were meant to play. Yeah, that's well said. And, and I, like I said, there's not a person I would recast. It's so perfect. There's a time where I caught myself watching this Michael, where I'm looking at Zach Efron and I forgot he was Zach Efron. And he absolutely sold me on on being Ted Bundy. And I'm looking at his like teeth, you know, as he's speaking. 
And I'm like, holy cow. Like, I had to shake my head back. I'm like, this is Zach Efron. This is not. Like, when I looked, there was a, just a moment where I looked at him. I'm like, he, he really sold me. So, I mean, absolutely beautiful performance by, by all these actors. It's scary how chameleonic he is. You know, yes. I, mean, I, 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 I completely agree. And, and I think this is kind of another sign that this movie happened when it was supposed to happen because had it happened nine years ago, Zach would not have been old enough to play this role. I think, um, you know, the, the world had to, had to change in a way he had to age into this role and the stars had to align in some weird cosmic way for, for, for the right combination of people to come together and make it. And I'm really happy with how it came out. So if you could have, if you had the opportunity, I realize you're not a reporter, but if you had the opportunity when you were writing this, are there things you wish you could have asked Ted Bundy? Not outside of why and outside of the all the things that everyone else wants to know. Is there something you really wanted to ask him if you, if the opportunity presented itself that you're that you would have asked? What's the type of question you maybe kind of kept going through your mind? Or do you get what I'm saying? Is is there a question that you just were dying to just know? Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting question, I, and I understand where you're coming from. But I, you know, honestly, I, I, I can't say that there's anything that I would have sought him out for um, because we, it was, it's a kind of a deceptive story in that it's not really about him. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we didn't want to, you know, and, and I feel there's some questions about this before about um, why we didn't get into the psychology of his character and um, kind of. Um, you know, uh, incidents from his past and traumas and whatnot. And, and it's because there's no consensus as to what may have caused this, what may have led him down this path. I don't think it's any one or two or three things. I think it's a culmination of thousands of choices that he made along his way that, that kind of deviated him from an otherwise normal path. And, um, and, and the common thread in everybody who's dealt with him, whether it's friends, lovers, family members, detectives, cops, journalists, is that, you always had a sense that he was manipulating you in the end anyways. And I, I don't, I don't think asking him any question is going to get any kind of a resolution. It might just be get more questions. And that was kind of the, the fascinating thing about Ted Bundy, the character is that um, he's so skilled at compartmentalizing reality that you could live in whatever reality his agenda needed. Um, and in this case it was, it was a seductive uh, love story type agenda. Um, but you know, there's, there's some great books about the cops getting the final confessions, uh, from him in the fine, in the last couple of days of his life, which, you know, they talk about, it would take three hours for him to just get up to the culmination of one case and, uh, and, and get to the details that they were looking for to corroborate everything. Um, so he was very skilled at, um, at manipulation and at kind of deviating the conversation away from your motives uh, towards his own. Uh, he always had some kind of ulterior agenda. And speaking of police, James uh, Hetfield of Metallica fame uh, absolutely does a great job as one of the police officers. Oh, he's awesome. Yeah, yeah. James did such a great role. Yeah, so, so let me ask. So so we, we get the victims. It's, it's heartbreaking. You know, the, they say Ted killed 30. might have been closer to 100, they say, which is unbelievable, maybe more. But, the, but what I found myself really feeling for, who I found myself feeling really just distraught over was was certainly Liz but but the one that nobody really talks about that I'm, I'm heartbroken for is the mother like I don't know I felt so, I, she doesn't have a huge role in the movie but when they show the real mom at the end and the mother on you know the, the, the actress who plays the mother I don't know Michael I really just felt so bad for, for, for the mother as well yeah, I think I think the tragic thing about this story and about these types of stories in general is all of the um, 
all of the collateral damage uh, that goes on around the person who is guilty of the crimes, you know, and that goes to uh, their intimate relationships, their platonic relationships, their coworkers, their family members. Um, there, there is a whole, there are several layers of victims when you, when you extrapolate beyond just the man. Um, and his mother is, is absolutely one of them. And, and there's so many things we could have explored uh, with that relationship had we had more narrative time. Um, that was one of the difficult things about writing the script is figuring out where to focus the, the narrative energy. Um, but that's, she's a fascinating character and, um, you know, they have their own backstory together. Yeah. And Michael, I never found myself with this and I watched it three times. I never found myself saying, I wish they, I wish that I was so happy with the complete story. Uh, I have to ask you more more as a, as a movie lover than, than, than a screenwriter here. Why does Liz make it out unscathed in the sense that she, she walks away with her life? Why is she, why does he never t- why does he never kill her? Why is she sta- why is she still alive? Why is she not one of the the, the car- part of the carnage that that he created? Well, that that's exactly the the question of the movie. Um, there is no clean answer to that, and perhaps the only people who know that um, are are Liz and Ted. Right. Um, Liz did ha- did ask him that. Um, that that is real dialogue. Um, he. Uh, there are there is an account where he um, when he would have these urges uh, as he calls them he would get out of the house he would get away from her um, he he knew enough to to stay away from the people that he cared about now whether or not that was those were actual feelings or just kind of a well controlled sociopathology that's another debate too but it's a tricky question because it it requires attributing an answer to something that's unanswerable. Um, nobody knows. I mean, you can make the argument that maybe because she was humanized in his world, she wasn't just an object, she wasn't just something that he stalked and killed, that that caused him to have different feelings uh, towards her. I, I don't know if that's true. Maybe it is. Um, but I don't have those answers. And I think that's that's an interesting debate to be had after the movie, is whether or not this love existed, whether or not a, soci- a psychopath is capable of love, and whether or not you think that love is true. Yeah, that, that is such a great debate, because my girlfriend and I were talking, I want to say, for an hour after the movie. And that's that's an effective movie, Michael. That's when you know you've, you've hit a home run, right? When people talk about it after the fact, you've given people that forum. So that's when a movie has absolutely achieved its goal. Am I right on that point? I think I'm, I'm excited that there's been a lot of conversation. It's been a very polarizing movie, but one thing that it's not, it, one thing we can't accuse anybody of being is indifference. Uh, people have a strong opinion, and it's, I think that's a healthy thing. And I, and I think if it, if it causes debate and it causes conversation, that's a good thing, because there is a lot of conversation about a lot of difficult issues that um, we need to be having as a country. Yeah, and, and one of the things I had to ask you was, you know, the irony that women kind of followed him in the courtroom where that's all he's killing is women. And I get that he's a rock star, he's a good-looking guy, certainly knows how to schmooze and and, and, and treat people. I just thought the irony of, of him having a, a large uh, following of females, when, when that's all he's been... Like, he's not killing just anyone. He's killing strictly females. I just thought the irony there is kind of just odd. Do you know what I'm saying? It's very strange, and there are so many things that are strange like that. And uh, you know, I want to emphasize that none of that was embellished for the sake of drama. I mean, we we were reporting the facts as they were. Um, yep. And, and it's it was just an odd time. And and there's there are eerie par- parallels today with how the um, the general public devours true crime in general, how the media treats certain criminals and and, and cases. 
Um, you know, Joe Berlinger likes to talk about Bundy as being the big bang of true crime and how you can draw a straight line from Bundy to the OJ trial. And you can extrapolate that to Amanda Knox. And you can what it, pick, your, pick your fascinating case of the week. Um, it kind of all began with Bundy. And, and Ted knew that. He, he saw the camera in the courtroom. He understood the power that that wielded. He was aware of how of his behavior and his looks and his charm and how he could use that to his advantage. And, um, you know, have we learned the lessons of that today? I don't know. I, I, I think that's another conversation to be had. Yeah. And, and I got, I just, I, I don't understand how, how that works. And you're right. It's a conversation that'll, that'll never have you know, an answer. Um, I have to say though, as a screenwriter, do, do you have contact with the actors? Do they ever say to you, you know, how would you say this or, or, or what's the appropriate way to, or, or is that something that goes through through Joe? How how does that rapport work? It would it would usually and and primarily go through Joe because um, you want to have a clear line of communication. You want to have a single vision on set. Um, there were times where actors would come up, or that I would um, workshop some things with actors. Um, there was a moment on the last day where you know I was rewriting some of the the closing arguments uh, for Zach and uh, Jim Parsons, and we were we were doing that. I know Jim Parsons had a couple. Uh, line questions specifically, um, for his, uh, prosecutor role. Um, it all depends, but, um, you know, when, when we were in production, the schedule is moving so fast and the director is pulled in so many different directions that there were times where I was available to answer questions. And if it was something that was too strong of a creative choice, I would always have to defer to him, uh, for natural reasons, because we want to have everybody on the same page. Yeah, the last third of the movie for me is just the whole movie's a home run, but absolutely just a great. It's a phenomenal ending, and and I have to say, you know, there's just you never really see his mask slip, right? He's always kind of schmoozing his way. He's kind of always you know deceiving people. It's and I mentioned this a little bit before. It slips once when he finally when Liz kind of wants to be released. I mean, it's a very difficult scene to watch because she's so captivated by him. But it does slip in that one moment, and, and clarity is given. So, I mean, that had to be a very a scene to write that was very uh, emotional for you too, as a screenwriter. Yeah, that was actually one of the very first things that I had um, before I wrote the script. I, I knew what the title was, I knew how what the tone was, and I knew how I wanted to end it. Um, and so, I, w- I was always writing towards that end in mind. And, and at that point, it kind of becomes a an issue of reverse engineering everything so that all of the drama beforehand builds up to support that moment. And that specific moment that you're talking about without getting into spoilers, we always kind of talked about it as our, I love you moment. It's, it's the one moment you could call it honesty. You could call it further deception. Um, that's up for debate as well, but we knew that that was a moment that was going to be a, a turning point in their love story. And, um, we tried to build everything to support that. Yeah. And, Joe is dead on when he, when he talks about comparing it to OJ because people were, were rooting for him to escape, right? People wanted Ted Bundy to escape. He did it twice. People were cheering for that, like they were cheering for OJ to kind of just keep going. Is that an accurate statement, Michael, you think? It's accurate because I mean, you have to remember in the time that this was all happening and even after the convictions, um, Ted Bundy was – was not this mythic archetype of evil yet. Um, the true scope and depravity of his crimes was not yet known. Um, and so, you know, people were on his side. They thought he was wrongfully um, accused. Uh, he did have plausible deniability for many, many years. There was very little physical evidence. Um, and it was broadcast to the media in a way that we had never seen before. 
Um, so yes, the people were rooting for him. And, um, and, uh, you know, it was only years later when the full picture started to emerge. And when Ted Bundy suddenly became this, this legend in, in cultural lore that people understand that he is above and beyond the evil that even they could have expected back then. Michael, is there a part of the the movie that is even so you're so blown away by that it, it presents you more clarity than when you even when you wrote the script. So in other words, is there a part of the movie that you were just so blown away by how accurate it was when you put it on paper? Is is there a scene like that for you in the movie or are, is it, are there many scenes like that for you? It's it's hard for me now to see it up objectively. I I see the movie as a whole and I think in the in the totality of the movie I'm just so grateful um for everybody's talents coming to it's it's a case of one and one makes three. I, I think it just it blew my mind the first time I saw it. Um, which even along during production, I was watching the dailies every single day. I watched every single take that we that we shot, every frame, um, and and I was just constantly impressed by the work that went into this by by everybody. And to see it all put together, um, like I said, uh, in the in the best in the best version of it it has replaced my own fantasy of what the movie could have been when I was writing it. I, I don't even remember what that looks like in my mind anymore. Um, it feels both exactly like the original intention and its own brand new thing. Um, and it's really gratifying to see that. And I got to say another person like who I have not mentioned, and I, I, I'm pretty sure you'll agree with this. Uh, I cannot imagine anybody else, but, but Zach in this role, but John Malkovich as the judge, my goodness. And, and this is a scene I was talking about. I'll be careful how I word this. So I don't ruin it for anybody. But, you know, when he's talking to Bundy and he's and, you know, I don't know if it's that that I know John Malkovich can get really loud and like angry. So I know he's being reserved, but he's just so calm and he's basically telling Ted Bundy, look, it's nothing personal. You're a bright young guy. You're a good. You know what I'm saying? You're a good lawyer. I would have loved to watch you practice in front of me. I got to say, Michael, that like that's when the tears were flowing. Like there's so many other reactions, especially being a televised trial. He he could have given into the you know the, the you know the guys people that were pro outside you know wanting him to die right away, but the judge just took an even keel kind of like like I, you took a, you took another path partner like what a it's one of the most beautiful scenes I've seen in any movie in 2019. Yeah, I mean John Malkovich, I mean his resume speaks for itself, but just th- this role in particular, he's just showed such subtlety and restraint and just he just has presence, you know, and, um, and, and, and then the real character judge Edward Coward, um, was a, a Southern man of faith and he, he was a kind man and he was a fair man and, um, he had a moral compass and, and I think you needed an actor of the John Malkovich caliber to pull that off effectively. Uh, He didn't, he had opportunities to to go big and he didn't because I think it was more impactful to let the gravity of the situation carry the drama as opposed to, uh, a huge performance and i think that is why you know he he has such presence and and he is a worthy adversary um for somebody like zach efron playing ted bundy yeah you are ver- you are much more articulate than i am that's absolutely what i wanted to say and you're absolutely right you know and i hate to keep going back to oj but you know when you were watching the oj trial johnny cochran was auditioning for like a role somewhere <laughs> like it was so over the top where you just mentioned this judge was basically like it's nothing personal. I have no animosity towards you. Take care of yourself. Like I'm like my I'm crying at a movie about a serial killer. Like 
Michael, Michael, I'm really mad at you that you made me cry at a movie about a serial <laughs> and Joe and Joe too. But it's so beautiful the way he just he and what he sums up is 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 a good summation about just Ted Bundy in general. What a waste of humanity. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that too because that, that's a line that often gets overlooked. Um, you know, he, as as complimentary and as respectful as that judge was, he also called it as, as he saw it, and, and that was that Ted was a total waste of humanity. Um, he was the voice of moral reason in that courtroom. Uh, the judge was, and um, and it cut both ways. He he could he could be. Um, he was very respectful of the fact that he was uh, issuing a death penalty, um, but he was also uh, a human being, and, and he had a soul, and he recognized that in other people as well. And he had a job to perform. He didn't have to like it, but he did it, and he did it with respect. And, and I want to be very careful. How I, and I have a few more questions if you don't mind answering, Michael. I, I appreciate sure. this. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I have to say, I have to be careful about this question, but whether it's Carol or, or Liz or, or even the mom, uh, should should somebody have known sooner? I mean, does love make you blind? Is it it was what was Ted such an effective, you know, used car salesman that he just just put a wool over people's eyes? Should somebody have realized something a lot sooner? And I, well, I, I don't want to say what this does, but should somebody have realized sooner? It's a good question. Um, and, and I again, I think it's kind of impossible to answer now in hindsight, because one of, one of the things that Ted Bundy is responsible for is redefining the idea of what evil is and who is capable of evil. Um, I think in this day and age, it's kind of obvious that anybody can do these atrocious things and, and looks, um, looks and, and status and all these things have no, no power anymore as far as uh, deceiving people. Um, but back in the seventies, uh, that was not so. Um, and I think Ted is, is who subverted all of those stereotypes. Um, but I don't know. I, I, I think it's an interesting question to, to ask what, what were these women getting from him? Um, but I, I don't want to put the blame on them. It's, I think it's, um, I think when you do care for somebody and when, when you do feel love for somebody, you want to give them the benefit of the doubt. And, um, you know, it wasn't, Carol Ann wasn't just a woman who, who came in in the 11th hour. She and Ted, uh, had worked together. They had a, they had a history together in Washington for years prior to that. So she wasn't just coming in like somebody who found him online and, and, and wrote prison emails. Um, she, um, you know, she actually cared about him, uh, as a, as a friend first and evolved from there because Ted had nobody, very few people in his life at that point. Um, but again, that's a long-winded way of, of, of answering your question with an, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have to say, you know, along the lines of the waste of humanity question, you know, I just, I hate this. It has, it's nothing to do with you or Joe. I just, you know, people cheering outside the day he was supposed to be put to death. I'm not going to get political. I don't want to talk about death penalty. But I have to say, I, I just have a problem with that. I mean, this whole thing is just, like, sad. Like, I don't know. I, I'm not okay with people cheering outside. Like, I get what he did. And he, it's probably worse than people think it. That's documented, too. Uh, and, and, Michael, I promise I'm not trying to get political. But I just, I have such a huge issue with people just cheering outside, like you shouldn't be cheering. Like, this is just sad on so many levels and so many degrees, you know? Yeah. And we, and we, we wanted to show the events as they were at the time. Yep. And that, that is literally what happened. And we're not making a, a comment on it. We're not making a judgment of it. And nope. you're welcome to feel however you want to feel. And, and they're, e they're each equally valid reactions. Um, you know, I've had people come up and talk about the death penalty on both sides of the issue. And, um, 
whatever you feel is fine. Um, we, we as filmmakers didn't, we didn't want to have a political agenda or a social agenda, or we didn't want to tell you anything. We wanted to present the story as it was and let you form your own opinions, uh, after all, all is seen and heard. So, so I live in New England, right? And, and our sports are very prominent here and, and, and you you grew up in Milwaukee sports, very prominent there as well. Um, you know, sometimes, many times an athlete will credit a coach and saying, you know, coach drew up a play, this and that. And, and it's a very kind statement. Have you ever had an actor say to you, my God, Michael, that was just a, such an awesome line. That's such a well thought out. And, you know, thank you for that. Have you ever had an actor do that to you or compliment you or has that ever happened? It's kind of an embarrassing question because I'm putting you on the spot here. But, <laughs> but, but has that ever happened to you? You know, it's interesting. I, I... You can typically tell actors who have a history in theater and TV um, because it is so reliant on the writer and the writer's intentions. Um, and in that respect, I, I, I can tell a difference as far as how they operate and and um, the way they treat the text, which is not to say that film actors um, are any less respectful of it all. But um, but it's interesting to see to see how they work differently. Um, but we had we had a phenomenal cast and crew uh on on the set and you know there were there were no this this was not a get rich movie uh nobody was doing this for a paycheck people were doing this because they believed in the material and they believed in what we were doing in a bigger sense and so everybody was just a pleasure to to work with and i'm not just saying that in, as some political answer um it, it truly was um a team effort and we all felt like one big family while we were doing this no and i'll back you on that i mean this and i'm not there's there's some netflix things that come out and i have a big i, I just don't i can't watch but this is one of the best I've ever seen as far as a movie goes on Netflix, and people ha are doing themselves a disservice by not watching this. Uh, my last two questions to you are this. Um, you, you mentioned you were at a, um, um, I think it was a Q&A after, after a screening. W what's one of the more interesting questions you got? I mean, I, I'm peppering you with some pretty bad ones, but what, what, what's a good question you've gotten from an audience member after the screening that, that made you like do a double take? <laughs> a double take. Uh, well, I'm, when I was in Milwaukee recently, um, I had a young woman ask me if coming from Milwaukee, and, and she called it Dahmer country, oh. whether or not I thought it was in my DNA to, to gravitate towards serial killer stories. Um, I, I thought it was a funny question. Um, it, funny in the sense that uh, it, it is a bit preposterous. Um, I mean, of course, uh, that, that is not, couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, I grew up during that time. I, I remember that vividly. But um, you know, it, it did not work its way into any any motivation I had for telling this story. And in fact, I, I think more the opposite. As I said before, I was interested in exploring a serial killer story with no serial killing in it, um, just as kind of a writing challenge. And, and could I tell a love story and make the audience fall in love with somebody that they know was a monster? Um, it's uh, I look at it. You know, bringing it back to, to, to Jaws, I look at this as Jaws as a love story where you don't see the shark for most of the movie. Right. Um, but you still know, I mean, people have seen Jaws 300 times and you still know what happens and you still know who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Uh, but there's still a thrill ride to go on. And um, and that anyway, at the end of the day, I just love a well-told story. This happens to be in a dark, true crime arena. Um, but if it's a well-told story, you know, I'll go along for the ride. And it's a great perspective. It's a great point of view. I've never seen anything like it, and it's so worth the watch. Um, I know about Lost Girls 2019. Is there anything else that you'd want to get out there and, and share with us? Um, th there's not much I can share about that just yet. We're in post right now. Uh, I, I believe it'll be out later this year. It's also going to be available on Netflix. That was um, directed by Liz Garbus, another fantastic documentary filmmaker. And this stars Amy Ryan and Gabriel Byrne. It's another look at a 
a real unsolved true crime case, a horrific case, but it's told through the perspective of the mothers of the victims. And so it's another interesting POV into an otherwise predictable story. And I'm really proud of the work that we did, and I can't wait for people to see that. Uh, so I lied. I have one more question. Is, is, there a tr- is there a movie, a true crime movie, whether it's Seven or any, anything, that, that you absolutely love? Is there? Like, we talk about Jaws. I get it. But is there another movie that you really gravitate to that you, as a fan of, of cinema, that you just absolutely love? Oh, I think, um, I mean, if we're, if we're talking about not just the serial killer genre, but true crime and right. just well, a well-made movie in general uh, of recent memory, um, Zodiac comes to mind. I, I, think, I think that is uh, Fincher's masterpiece. I, I watch that at least once a year. The filmmaking is phenomenal. Uh, I'm riveted by the story, even though it runs you know, almost three hours. Uh, I just think it's so well done. It's so well researched. It's not gratuitous in a way that that shows anything beyond what we already know through the evidence. Um, that was a big influence. Uh, I, I just I just love I love that movie. Yeah, and, and speaking of, of of David Fincher, I believe he did Mindhunter, which is also on um, Netflix. And what a wonderful back to back that would be to see that and, and the movie uh, you just wrote for. So um, I have to say, Michael, thank you so much for being on the show today. You're you're such a wonderful guest, and when you pick up your Academy Award, I'm going to be a little bit upset <laughs> if my name is not mentioned, but thank you so much. We, we learned so much about you. What a wonderful movie. What a wonderful accomplishment. You have such an amazing future ahead of you. I wish you nothing but love and success down the road. <laughs> 